0: Hello, this is Ken Root. My seven years as host of AgriTalk were not marked by excellence in broadcasting awards. They were best known for the accessibility of voices from rural America who were stating their case. Our callers had passion and purpose in their comments. I was, at best, a referee. Some said I was biased against both sides, but I tried to keep our callers on message while challenging their logic. The show you're about to hear is an example of real people saying what they thought. The listeners had to determine if the arguments put forward were good, bad, or irrelevant. Today, I listen to these shows and I wonder how I kept the pace in these conversations. I do remember that Open Line Friday exhausted me mentally and physically. If you've observed agriculture and rural infrastructure changes over the last two decades, you may find these discussions from 1998 to be insightful. If you want to let me know what you think of these archive broadcasts, my email is kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Here is an Open Forum Friday program for March 6th, 1998. This is AgriTalk. It's a Friday. I'm Ken Root. Welcome you to our Friday Forum. Welcoming you to our Friday Forum. I'm not going to call it open line because I'd like to continue our focus on rural and agricultural issues, broad as they may be. This week we had several topical shows with great interaction with you, and I thank you for that. Perhaps you didn't get all that you wanted to say, put in, about getting bigger in farming and being happier about it with Dr. Farmer back on Monday. The year of El Nino, downer cows with Temple Grandin, or railroads and agriculture yesterday with Congressman Jerry Moran from the state of Kansas. Past that, there's a great deal of ag and rural controversy in the news Let me begin with a couple of letters I got this week, and thank you for your letters. Our address, uh, Agritalk Box 901505, Kansas City, Missouri, 64190. I'll try to give that to you if I remember it later on in the hour. Marcella from Minnesota, who listens to us on KASM in Albany, home of Cliff Mitchell, Minnesota. Thank you for writing. Marcella disputes the authority of government agencies to make regulations that have the force of law. Quoting her, she says legislation should come from those we elect. If they don't have time to vote, then we have excessive government. Well, Marcella, Congress first passes a law and then directs an agency to carry out the mandates dictated by that law. And through procedures designed by Congress, they write regulations, they review those, and then they're published. And from that point on, based on a phase-in or a grandfathering, they can be enforced as law. Now, the EPA yesterday announced it's preparing to impose new regulations on large livestock feeding operations, projected to be about 6,000. That made news this morning across the country. The attempt by EPA and their uh, ability to do so is to reduce the flow of animal waste into the nation's waterways. The USDA thought that was their job to regulate agriculture. They're going to be holding hearings and see whether the authority is in the hands of USDA or EPA. But, of course, both of those are federal agencies. Senator Harkin, who's reduced the keep the hogs in Iowa where they belong bill, uh, wants the USDA to be the controlling agency. But apparently EPA says we don't need any more legislation. We have enough authority right now to be able to regulate animal waste. On another matter, a letter from Mabel Miller about larger farms, which we talked about on Monday with Dr. Val Farmer. Quote, "Uh, you say we just have to get bigger. That's like saying you lose money on six cows, get 12 so that you can lose more. Well, Mabel, that is the Oklahoma theory of agricultural advancement. That one doesn't work, however. I have said and continue to say that if you produce a commodity, you have to produce it efficiently. That's as much as I have said, but everything else starts fitting into this whole thing. Farmers make the choice to get bigger because they realize that thin profit margins per cow or per bushel can only be compensated by larger production. So, for example, you can write this down if you want. If you have 200 acres of corn and you make $50 an acre net above expenses. Now, this is the expenses for production. This does not count your personal vehicle and your living expenses. But if you make $50 net, then you'd have on 200 acres $10,000. You can't live on that today. So you've got one of two choices. Either you increase your acreage to, let's say, 800 acres with a profit of even less probably, maybe $40 an acre, it still nets you $32,000, which is enough to live on. Or you get a job in town that nets you 22000 add that to the 10000 you made from farming, you've got the 32000 that's enough to live on. What seems to be the most infuriating, however, to many people who call us, is that farmers don't stop at this moderate size. They keep moving up and, in Mabel's quote, getting greedy. She writes, I'll quote her again, Why shouldn't the folks that provide the food and fiber that makes living possible be able to make a living doing it? You know, that's a pretty good statement. Why shouldn't the folks that provide the food and fiber that makes living possible be able to make a living doing it? Because in this government we have been uh, satisfied with your agricultural productivity at low prices for so long that as individuals... Farmers have no value. We desperately need agriculture, but we don't value the farmer. Agree with me? Disagree with me? That's the way it seems to be going. Now, on this subject of greed, she accuses the sellers of fuel, machinery, seed, fertilizer, etc., of selling at the highest prices possible. Well, my question, folks, if soybeans could be sold at $12 a bushel, would you take that? Or would you decline it saying to take it would be greedy? Well, let's talk this morning on any subject, any issue. Our number is 888-247-4825. This is an open forum. We'd like to keep it within the realms of rural America and agriculture. 888-AGRITALK. Back in a moment. This is AgriTalk. I'm Ken Root. Next week, by the way, in fact, we've got several good shows coming up as we get into primetime season of all of you getting ready to uh, get serious about farming and ranching this spring. Rustin Hamilton, who's the host of the show, to all those people who have never heard it, and uh, some of them, you know, tell us that if they get off the, the air. We love you, Rustin. We really do. Um, he's a great producer. He's secured Paul Engler, the Texas cattle feeder who sued Oprah, Also, he's got Paul's son, Mike, who was an expert witness at the trial. They had a gag order during this litigation, but their muzzle's off now, and they can talk, and they've agreed to talk to us next Thursday. So next Thursday, they'll be on. Rustin even called Oprah's staff yesterday. So far, she's declined, but after Mr. Engler's show, we may send her a copy of that and see if she'll come on with us. And dropping names next, uh, I guess, during Agriculture Week, which we're going to make a big deal out of, we'll tell you more about it later. We hope to have, and have got a pretty good indication early on, that Sam Donaldson, a New Mexico rancher, will be on with us. Well, let's go to Harris in Missouri. Harris, good morning. Welcome to this Open Forum, Friday.
1: Hey, good morning. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. I was listening to your program yesterday about the railroad crisis and the lack of uh, the elevator's abilities to get rail cars at the during the harvest time, and I remembered uh, somewhat. Uh, growing up in North Missouri in the 60s, where there were government grain bin storage everywhere, and that's all gone. And in the 70s, uh, there were programs, I believe, through the USDA that uh, helped them, at least in part, promote uh, the the farmer purchasing on the farm grain storage and and thinking about all this stuff. It, it appears to me that the farmer is at the mercy of a lot of things beyond the typical things like weather and all that type of thing, and, and If we had a a better on-farm grain storage program, and also teach that farmer how to buy contracts, uh, leverage his his fruits and efforts, if you will, like about every grain elevator that I've seen in Missouri do, uh, and maintain more control over profit and loss,
0: Well, first of all, I I think you're right on the the grain storage issue is that we have so much more production now than we had in the 60s. I don't think we've decreased our grain storage. We don't have as many incentives for grain storage on the farm at this point. That's true. But past that, if we could just get a better marketing system that people would participate in they'd come out better on the long run. That's one of the reasons the Canadians beat us. They pool their wheat. But in this country where we have the right to do what we wish, when we wish, we choose not to utilize some of these tools. And, you know, after all the discussion we have on futures contracts and on hedging and open naked short selling, as some people call it, it's all a tool and it's out there and it's a question of will you take the time To understand how to use it, or will you let somebody else use it against you?
1: What do you think it's going to take? You know, I mean, there are people outside of farming that that probably couldn't tell the difference between a cow and a bull elk. Make a fortune off farming in America, you know, and and, and at the the greater exchanges in you know Minneapolis and New York and Chicago grain boards, And, and and it's been done for years and years and years, and they do it by understanding how the global uh, economy is affected by farming.
0: And yeah, they don't do it illegally or unethically. True, true. They just understand how the system works, and they use utilize the tools the farmers don't. They do have a lot of risk, though, Harris. I want to point that out. Oh, understandable. There's a risk-reward basis here, and not all those people make money. But they understand. You're right. Knowledge is what makes them money. Well, the Production thanks. doesn't make you money. Knowledge makes you money.
1: I understand that. And lack of, lack of use of it is, you know, I... I think I think the, the average farmer in America will do it, but he's he or they uh, have have grown accustomed to their particular uh, way of of farming, and I think they're they're really missing the boat
0: here. I think the average farmer in America has already gone out of business.
1: Well, I, I tend to agree
0: <laughs> with you, sir. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. You got to be above average at worst. Let's go to Ken in Illinois. Ken, good morning.
2: Yeah, good morning. Um, yeah, well I, uh, the last caller kinda of example a uh, point I wanna make is uh the
0: problem with uh we work uh, we work. Let me just turn the
2: radio up here just a minute. Um uh, okay, the the problem with farming today is that uh, we don't think big enough. You know, everybody says we gotta get bigger. The problem is we've gotta think bigger. And a perfect example is that last caller, he said that, uh, that you can make money on the uh, trading green. Well, yeah, some people do, but some people lose, as you pointed out.
0: That's right, if you speculate.
2: Right, right, exactly. But my point is, is if we would think big enough, there is no money created in the stock market.
0: No, or in the in
2: in the grain market.
0: That's right, but you Uh, create the the average
2: profits is zero minus brokerage fees.
0: But you create the wealth. See, that's one of the things about a raw materials industry is you create the wealth, but in agriculture we realize very little of that wealth ourselves because we turn it over to somebody else who has a lower cost and a higher profitability.
2: Yeah. However, you see that isn't really true. Because let's take the five dollar corn. Of the amount of green in the United States, that when it was five dollars, how much green actually sold for five dollars to the farmer?
0: No, from the farmer to, that the farmer received the five dollars, almost zero.
2: Right, exactly. And see, that's my point is that we've got to look at the whole picture. Yeah. And and I also would say as part of the thinking big and the and you pointed out the $12 price. Price really has very little to do with uh, our whole farm problem.
0: Well, price versus cost.
2: Right, exactly. Price plus all of the other complexities Mm -hmm. that make into profitability.
0: I'm trying to get people to stop having yield contests. This is my personal goal here. Don't have any more yield contests. Have a contest to where that you have to prove how much you made net. Mm-hmm. Right. That way you don't have people just trying to go out and produce all they can, even though it costs them more to produce it. Uh, they still get the recognition that they don't They don't show what their actual costs were, and they don't show how good a marketers they were, and all three of those have to fit together to make this whole thing work. Ken, we have run out of time yeah. in this segment. Thank you very yeah, much. thanks for In a moment, we'll come back and talk to you. If you're on the line, stay there. If not, add in on this open forum at 888-247-4825. This is Agritalk. This is Agritalk. Let's talk. John in Minnesota. Hello, John. Yes, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. How's your winter?
3: What winter?
0: Yeah, that's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> yes. I hope you can say that occasionally.
3: We just, uh, they said it was the sixth warmest December, January, and February on record in this area, so it yeah. was very much appreciated versus what we had last year.
0: Well, let's hope that it doesn't turn into a drought and that you have a good summer.
3: We hope so. The last time we had El Nino, we did have a pretty dry summer here. Can't happen. Why don't comment on a couple, three things? You mentioned at the start of the program about living on $32,000. Uh, the farm record service that's done by the extension of the university in Minnesota shows the average cost is about $40,000. 40, 32000 you may be able to live on if you don't have to pay any taxes, but when you include taxes and other stuff, the average is closer to
0: 40000 Well, I was rolling the taxes for all your agricultural side into your cost. I, I'm quoting an ag economist uh, who said that the average farm family today spends $32,000 a year for personal living expenses.
3: Yeah, that, well, that could that could be closer, too. The thing that bothers me when people use this, if, if we use that figure right, if they don't make considerably over that, they have nothing to buy the capital ex- purchases that they need to farm with. There's That's nothing exactly to right. go to land payments. There's nothing to go to machinery. So when we look at profitability on farms, we really got to look at more than just cost of living.
0: Yeah, I agree. And to and you're proving what I'm saying is people are getting larger because they are willing to take a thin margin, but on a large number of units, and as a result of that, they've got enough to live on and enough to expand.
3: Yes, and the second thing that, that concerns me is that people talk, well, all we have to do is have a higher price. Well, if that happens, the only people that benefit from higher prices are the people that own the land, because as soon as the price goes up and stays there very long, the price of land is bid up or the price of rent is bid up, and so the only persons that really benefit are the people who own the land in the past. If you look at the average cost, and very seldom do we ever figure what the average cost of production is in, in now based on what they paid for the land. It's always based on the current cost of land. So well, there are people that can't make money at the present prices, it's probably because they're, they've paid twice as much for land in our area. Yep. If I paid $750 for my land 20 years ago and my neighbor paid $1,500 for his last year, whose cost of production is going to be lower?
0: The thing, John, is that there's such pent-up demand for land that any time people get enough money to buy it, they will do so.
3: Well, but we can't stop people from being willing to... Take less for something. Uh, we, we didn't. We didn't bail out Chrysler when they got in trouble. I mean, we, we tried to, but finally they raised the prices and improved the product. We've had a. I think we've had um, a history in agriculture of producing what we want to and expecting mm-hmm. the market to to buy it. Yeah,
4: that's and very j- true.
3: Just in lately now, uh, the hog industry, which I'm the most familiar with, has gotten in mind that yeah, we've got to pay more attention to what the consumer demands, so we start changing. Uh, what we're producing. But the days of totally producing a blank commodity product
5: are basically
0: over. Well, they're not over, but I think they are going to be over for the people who believe that if they just keep producing a large quantity, regardless of the cost, they will come out okay. You have to balance everything. Yes, a large quantity is important, but it's that margin you have and that volume you have combined with it that make the difference whether you stay in business or whether you go broke. Thank yeah. you very much, John, for your call this morning. Okay, in a moment, those of you on the line, we'd really like to hear from you. I will move fast in the second half hour if you will stay. And if you're not with us yet and like to add in where John was, it's 888 247 4825. This is a Friday. We're glad to have you with us here on AgriTalk. Back to Agritalk with your host, Ken Ah, uh, We're wrapping up the week here, the virtual coffee shop of rural America. Glad to have you with us today and every day. We had good shows this week and good comments still coming in today here. There's a lot of ways you can talk to us. First of all, talk to us, and that is call us on the show and express your opinion or give us some information that we don't have. Secondly, we have a fax number, and that is uh, 816-891-0146. And thirdly, you can write us, that's three out of four here, Box 901505, Kansas City, Missouri 64190. And lastly, since we are strongly in the information age, you can contact us by email at agritalk.com. I received a fax this morning, and I have to admit to you I'm pretty open here on everything that my 49th birthday is coming up tomorrow. And I receive birthday wishing, wishes from the Ladukes in Illinois, a picture of myself and a Hawaiian princess from this last year on the trip that we had over there. Very, very nice. Thank you, Nancy and Ron. All right. Let's go back to the phone lines. we got Howard in South Dakota. Howard, I was talking to you the half hour, trying to look. How are you, Howard?
6: I'm awful good.
0: Well, good. Glad to hear Living that. Living
6: here in Gettysburg, South Dakota, we don't have the snow like we did last year, which yep. is
0: a very good blessing. Well, we should be thankful for that. I was trying to find in my High Plains Journal the article you had that you wanted to talk about. What article is that?
6: Pot Roast wins prize at NCBA. Yeah, that... Harris Ranch Beef Company, Selma, California, is $250,000 richer after his company award, its National Cattlemen's Beef Association Award for the best new beef product in America.
0: What do you think of that?
6: Well, I think $250,000 is a hell of a big price.
0: Yeah, it that is. That
6: off from $250 would have been a very nice price.
0: Well, wasn't the effort here to get a company to produce a product that could generate more demand for beef?
6: The winning roast, pot roast is made from beef brisket, which natural seasoning is slow-cooked for 6.5 hours.
0: Yeah, but the gravy
6: is produced naturally in the process.
0: But now they're making it to where that don't they cook it first and then you as a consumer just have to cook it for a short time?
6: Well, it says here, then the word restaurant for the company's fully cooked ready to eat and yeah. eat in 7 minutes pot roast in its own gravy.
0: Well, we don't have time, you know, that's the deal the American consumer says she doesn't have time to cook beef or other products that take a long time. So, I think that the effort here is pretty good of trying to get something that has the cooking already done and is beef and hopefully will produce more demand for the product that you grow, Howard. But
6: the most of the projects are made in the top five are competitions from the chuck and the round, uh, which, along with the trimmings, represent 75% of the carcass.
0: Yeah, don't your cows, don't your steers have some chuck and some round and some brisket on them?
6: Well, I don't have no cattle. I'm the grain farmer.
0: Well, if I you're live a, in
6: town. If you're I may a, talk a little fast, because when I was young, I went away to the auctioneering school. Well but I, what gets so. me, the ward was funded with the National Beef Chuck Off Funds, for $250,000, which I think is a lot of money to give a price like that Well, it is. national beef chuck-off front.
0: It is, but it got results if this product goes on to commercialize and produce demand. I mean, it is money spent, and then you have income gained. The hard part here, Howard, if I think where you're going, is that it's hard to show on the front end how producer dollars can be invested in such large quantities uh without knowing what you're gonna get back for it.
6: Well that's very true. I agree with you that there.
0: But you don't you don't contribute to to any of the uh you don't contribute to the beef checkoff. What do you think of the checkoffs you contribute to?
6: Well I check I I contribute to the wheat uh checkoff and the sunflower. Now the sunflower's a rather good price. It's up to ten seventy five, ten eighty five. But the wheat price is way, way down. You're lucky if you get three forty Three fifty for thirteen, fourteen pro. Do you believe goes up a couple pennies one day and down (laughs) five, six cents the next
0: day? Let me jump in and say that there is a move afoot now. The Livestock Marketing Association board has just voted and released information that they want a new vote on whether producers want to keep the checkoff. So, if, uh, if for those beef producers out there, there could be a vote on that checkoff. Checkoffs, though, do not have a direct short-term, cause-and-effect relationship. If you spend a million dollars this year on promotion, it's not guaranteed you're going to get back that money on the short-term, Howard. It just doesn't work that way. I know, that's right. But you've got to have some way, in my opinion, of producers taking care of themselves and generating long-term demand for their product. The question is how you want to do it, how you want to uh, handle the money, who you want to set on that board and how you want those ads or incentives placed. And that is complicated, but some people are making a pretty good run at it.
6: Well, I noticed the other day I was reading Ag Week out of Grand Forks, North Dakota, and a neighbor of mine out northwestern, Eugene Nagel, said in there, he doesn't believe that the dollar checkoff is doing us any good or any benefit.
0: Well, he has every right to say that. And, and he, he is
6: a cattle producer. that have, he have wants about 180, to go, 200 head of cows. Uh-huh.
0: Well, now, but but he goes with your view. What if somebody else said the cattle checkoff is why your par- market price isn't lower today than it is?
6: Well, that's very true.
0: Yeah. Howard, thanks a lot.
6: Thank you. You have a good day. I sure enjoy your program. Listen to your partner every day if I'm okay. close to a radio. Well,
0: by golly, we'll be here. Take a- care of yourself. And you
6: have a happy birthday tomorrow and have All your right. wife take you out to supper.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, I'll do that. Thank you. What a nice guy. Everybody's a nice person. I, I love it. Let 's go to Walter in Texas Don't disappoint me, Walter. Good morning
7: <laughs> yes, sir. Good morning. Uh, I just have a two or three uh, little comments I'd like to make first of all, it really annoys me when uh, a politician who should know better comes on the program and talks about rail transportation and refers everybody back a uh, hundred years ago when the government gave them land. They didn't give them all that land; they only gave them every other section. And for that land, they had to give the government uh, reduced rates and hauling government material and government personnel, and this did not go out of business till 1951. I worked 42 and a half years on the railway as a clerk, an agent, mm-hmm. and a signalman, and, and I know what I'm talking about.
0: Well, if and- we jump, though, Walter, from then till now, and we put the railroads out there as one of several forms of transportation today, do you think they're doing the job you want them to do today?
7: No, they're not doing the job the farmers need today. No, sir.
0: Now, okay, so the past is the past. And the, it's, past and it's, is gl- the past is the past, and glorious, these politicians
7: should let it be that away.
0: Yeah, but I think that now we got to deal with whether or not we want that infrastructure of the railroads to disintegrate, or we're going to, or we're going to utilize it in agriculture as one more source of transportation to keep our prices down. We're
7: going to have to go back and redo some re-regulation.
0: Well, what about re-regulating uh, the railroads themselves? Is that what as, you're saying?
7: Absolutely.
0: Now that means that you then subsidize them for doing the job.
7: No, you just need to get a bull whip and make them furnish these <laughs> elevators cars. Okay, you that's know what they're doing? I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what they're doing. Yes. They're taking the switches out of these grain elevators out here in the country on these branch lines. They're holding cars. They're hiding cars out in New Mexico and the back in the desert.
0: Well, they don't have any engines. This year, the problem oh, was they, they, they no, said they, they couldn't get an engine out there. They said they couldn't get a crew well, out to haul another, that
7: out. That was just another damn lie that they come out with because... They are trying their best to break the railroad retirement system. They have cut the employment down from 500000 to less than 200000 in the past five years. They haven't got anybody to maintain the mm-hmm. things. The, the locomotive companies are begging to build new locomotives, and, well, and they're bypassing the money. Is going to the banks.
0: Walter, what you're saying is confirming what other railroad employees said yesterday, that the times have changed. It appears to me that once regulation ended for these railroads, their struggle to be able to make a profit in the open market the way they did business is failing, and that the Union Pacific lost $150 million the fourth quarter of last year, so they're going to try to cut those costs wherever they can at the expense of anyone and everyone. So employees suffered, and agriculture suffered, the government pulled their shipments off the Union Pacific. They said they couldn't afford to have them ship the tanks anymore because they didn't get there and they left them unsecured. So either we let these railroads go broke or we step in as a country because they are a necessary part of our infrastructure and economy and take over again.
7: We step in as a country and say, hey, you merge with the Southern Pacific. is too big for you to handle. So Back de- off.
0: So demerge. Get the bull whip out, huh?
7: You get the bull bullwhip out. Get those three people off that service transportation board up there and put people that really know what the hell they're doing as far as the farmer goes and the railroad business people go. We don't need another super highway to Kansas City. There are seven well-maintained railroad lines from Texas to Kansas City. Right. If you want me to name them, I'll name them.
0: No, but I, I believe you. But I think that the effort to get this superhighway, this NAFTA highway, shows that we do need a form of transportation that is bigger than what the highways now can haul. Have
7: you been on a border lately? Yeah. The railroads are really getting ready for that, to haul that stuff northeast towards Kansas City and St. Louis.
0: Well, yeah, the the Kansas City Southern even has a connection now into Mexico. Walter, I'm out of time here. I got to go.
7: Okay, buddy.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we'll talk to you in a moment. Walter wasn't good enough on what he had to say. Add to it our number 888 Agridoc. Back after this. This is Ken Root. Before we continue our uninhibited discussion on this Friday, that feels wonderful for people to call in and talk about the things that concern them. I'd like to thank our crew here, Rustin Hamilton, our senior producer, Dennis Goodnight, our engineer and editor, Rhonda Stevenson, our call screener, uh, Don Schultz, who's our sales and affiliates manager, and Mark Perrin, who's our president, and all 115 affiliates in 33 states who carry us each day here on Agritalk. Let's go to Mark in Iowa. Hello, Mark. Thank you for calling. How are you? Fine.
8: Uh, I'd just like to comment on uh, all what you've been talking about, about farmers getting bigger. And you're talking about profit and loss there. You know, if you read the financial page, they give statements for companies. And the quarterly statements, you know, usually they say profits were up or profits were down, but there was profit there. And that's where, you know, the way you expand is by having a profit.
0: Well, in agriculture, we're family corporations, uh, family businesses, uh, or smaller uh, than a corporation, and usually they don't put out any kind of a profit statement. Most people will indicate they're losing money when they're not losing money. Um, They're just saving the money that was above their costs. So corporations, yes, in most cases, have a better way of making a profit than agriculture, because corporations literally have to make a, a profit every year. That's why... Corporate farming, when I look at that, is still, to me, a misnomer, because corporations that are in it for the profit are usually not in farming.
8: Well, who's in business to lose money?
0: Uh, Good point. But there are a lot of people in agriculture that will tell you they lose money every year. We had a guy a while back, he said he'd lost money 48 out of 50 years. How did he do that and stay in business?
5: Well, you do
8: what you do to get out of paying taxes.
0: Well, then that means that you didn't lose money. You just deferred it away from being classed as income. Right. One of the things in agriculture now that that concerns me is being able to get out of this mode that the government needs me out here on the land and moving into a mode of saying, I want to be here. I'm farming because I want to farm. I want to a lifestyle, but I understand it is a business, and if I don't make a profit in this business enough to keep me here, I'm going to have to move to something else. And then past that, understanding that the difference today and the difference uh, from yesterday and why people leave the farm is that in the past, people were willing to live a very austere lifestyle on the farm that they had a minimal of everything. They had a lower standard of living than people who were off the farm. And today, in most cases, except for our most elderly people, people in agriculture, people who live in rural America, have literally the same standard of living as anyone else, and it costs money.
8: Right. Oh, I agree with that 100%. Uh, I'd also like to comment on uh, Mr. Harkin and his uh, national standards for, you know, big livestock operations. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think it's best left up to the states because you can't blanket the whole country with the same rules and regulations. You know, oh, I mean,
0: yes, yes, you can, and that is his whole intent. His intent is to keep the hogs where they are. You see, that 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 legislation that he's got is is really an attempt to keep it from being, from some other state to having lower standards, which will move the hogs out of the traditional production areas to them. That's why it's there, in my estimation. It's not there to protect the country. It's there to keep the hogs in Iowa.
8: Well, I think the hogs will stay here in Iowa, you know, if, uh, if they're given the leeway, you know, and the, the state, they have their own regulations. Here in Iowa we do.
0: Yeah, but your state is raising the bar. You're trying to make all your hog farmers in that state live up to your environmental requirements, which is fine. But what about Wyoming or another state um that does not have any regulations and that's that's why the, a lot of the hogs wound up in north carolina to begin with uh that's why those big operations went down there because they could go in there with economic incentives and minimal regulation so what uh what we what we need is some uniformity mark i, I disagree with you that that it should be left up to the states except that a state can raise it above a federal minimum okay okay all right thank you for your call yep. But All right, let's go to John in Missouri. Those folks have called and got off the line. I wish you'd stayed here. I'd have got to you. John, good morning. Good morning. What do you think?
4: What I think, I think you've got a good show, but I want to make one comment on irradiation. Back in the 60s, we traveled a lot and had little girls. We stopped and get milk at, at convenience stores, and half the time it'd be sour. We stopped in one store in Idaho or Utah, I don't remember which, had on the shelf uh, irradiated milk. So we bought enough for a couple of days and it tasted exactly like regular milk. There's no off taste. There's no way you could tell except it wasn't sour. Hmm.
0: You sure it wasn't just UHT milk, ultra high temperature milk? No, no,
4: it said irradiated.
0: Okay, all right, I believe you. I just wasn't and sure it tasted when it eventually the same became. Warm or
4: cold as regular milk? I couldn't tell any difference. The yeah. kids didn't turn up their nose and usually. Well,
0: the- you know, I, I love what you're saying because it is a scientific fact that the irradiation of food does not damn does not threaten you as a consumer it may not change in any the, way. it may change the taste a little bit nope, but it didn't <laughs> but in some cases it does in and, some foods it does change the taste and i
4: think the army found out they couldn't have rations mm-hmm. that they put in so sanitary but what eventually something will grow in it
0: but you know we got people in this country that just are suspect of everything
4: oh yeah we got morons all over <laughs>
0: Yeah. I got what?
4: one more comment about the farmers. All right. It's just like a young couple getting married. They have a problem in farming. It's because their expectations were way above reality.
0: Okay. So you've you <laughs> got two ways to go. You can either come down to the real world, or you can take the real world up to where you well, want it to be. they see that
4: big green stuff across the fence, and they think they're going to get it on their smaller acreage, and they're not going to do it unless they do some real clever managing. Thank you, John. Yes, sir. Bye.
0: Bye-bye. Let's go to J.D. on a mobile phone in Oklahoma. Hello, J.D.
5: Hello. Uh, yeah. My comment was uh, farmers or anybody's not allowed to speculate on manufactured goods or drugs, etc.
0: You can buy stock in those companies?
5: True, but it that depends on where they make a profit. And they have actual... I mean, you've got to put up something, actual money, uh, if... uh. I speculate on wheat. I don't have to take delivery of it.
0: But you have to put up the money.
5: Only on a margin, though.
0: No. But if they call the margin, if it goes right, the other way, you got to put point up the is money.
5: That uh, why should we allow people to make? Uh, a profit on something they don't uh, physically
0: possess. Well, you're in the naked short-selling idea, and the concept of the futures market is that this extra volume that these people provide actually makes it to where you, as a person who has the product, have somebody out there who is willing to be on the opposite side of that contract. If it was only farmers, only grain elevators, only exporters, your volume of the market would be so low... That, as I understand it, there'd be many times when you could not hedge because nobody would be out there willing to take the risk.
5: right, but we're not allowed to hedge on a car
0: It's not allowed it's <laughs> It's a matter of a uniformity, a commodity literally j d there's no commodity in this world that meets the classifications of being homogeneous well, and transportable, et cetera that right. they don't that you can't hedge on. You can buy literally every raw material, but if you have a manufactured item then possibly yes, but you you I, yeah. cannot hedge it specifically.
5: I agree in a way, but I still think when they took away the, well, for example, there used to be a delivery point at Gaiman, Oklahoma, when the Swift plant was there on yeah. fat.
0: J.D., we're running out of time here. Yes, Let's talk about, this, talk about this another time. Okay. Thank you. Okay, folks, sorry we didn't get to all of you today. Sorry we didn't get J.D. to finish up, but we'll try this again every Friday. So it's an expression of your rights to speak out in America on Agritalk. This program was recorded on March 6, 1998. Only the commercials were removed. Farm Journal now owns Agritalk and gave their permission for me to make podcasts from these shows. If you remember one that tripped your trigger, or you want to tell me what you think of the concept of airing programs that are a quarter century old, well, send them to kenroot at gmail dot com. Subscribe to the podcast series if you wish, and you'll be notified of each new one that's released. There is no cost to subscribe, just the time it takes to listen to the program. Thank you.